I understand the power of good design. And when you know how quickly you can turn uh, degenerative systems using generative design and regenerative process, you realize how quickly we can turn the story around. And, it, and in that, to me, is where the hope lies. It's, it's in conscious design that is consideration, is taking into consideration how we make more life with our own life. Hi, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of the Mother Earth Heroes. This is the podcast where we're speaking with inspiring people designing companies, products, and systems to make a better world. Modern farming methods are certainly causing some challenges for the environment. One of the reasons is we tend to use huge monocrops on these very, very large scales. And that's not natural. In order to do that, we need an awful lot of water. We need a lot of resources. And more often than not, the soil is not um, surviving very well. So we have to put on lots and lots of chemicals, which, of course, come from oil and oil-based sources. Now, this isn't sustainable, and we need to find better ways of doing this in the future. And this is what my guest, Warren Brush, is going to be talking about today. He's going to be discussing with us permaculture. Warren is a systems thinker and a designer and much, much more than that. And he's going to be talking today about how we can design regenerative processes using permaculture and systems that will help us not only to produce food, but also a healthy environment to support them. Warren talks about how much energy is required in setting up these systems, but then also about the energy that we can get from them once they're established and how we should be thinking in a much longer time frame than we traditionally do. We should be thinking more in sort of a 200 years when we're designing systems that are going to be providing food for us and the generations to come. And he'll be discussing much, much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Warren Brush. So yeah, my name is Warren Brush. I'm a uh, agroecological consultant, permaculture designer, a, um, uh, a a person who works a lot with uh, design, human settlement. Uh, so looking at the holistic human settlement. And right now, I do a lot of work with USAID. Um, we developed a framework called the Resilience Design Framework that is being picked up by uh, USAID, many other large NGO agencies globally working specifically in food security. Um, we also, I work with the UN, I work with many other organizations ensuring food security around the world. And a lot of that rooted into the work we did in uh, drylands development of agriculture at a place called Quell Springs, which is a permaculture farm and community, which is where I also feel like I have an umbilical in the ground because it's a, it's a place I call home. And yet I don't live there, but I, I go there and I'm a part of it and have been a part of it since it its inception in 2003. I think this awareness for the environment seems to keep rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that's because we're starting to really see the the effects and the consequences of the actions and things we've done. But this has been something that's been on your mind a lot longer than yeah. many people. So how did that, mm. what was the trigger for you? When did that become a thing? You know, it's it has a lot to do with the influences as a child. I, I grew up in the mountains of Santa Cruz, uh, California, and uh, in the edge of a redwood forest forest uh, along a river called the San Lorenzo River. And I spent a lot of my childhood exploring and playing in those woods. Those woods were my home. I believe that a lot of our worldview is influ- influenced by two things. And one of them is the sensory input that we 
that we have with all of our senses, what whatever comes to us, you know, and that includes the love and tenderness as well as the exposure to a redwood tree, to a, a babbling brook, you know, moving moving by in your life. And then the second thing is mind focus. So what you give your attention to. And so for me, I was, I've always been very interested in earth sciences, uh, biology. Um, that, that was what my, my work in college was in biology and, and botany. Also, you know, thinking of different kind of rituals in my own life of things like gratitude, just having a, you know, a ritual of gratitude that makes me remember, you know, it's a gift to be alive every day out here in the world. And and I know that had an influence on my worldview, which informed a lot of the decisions as I started to move into how am I going to express my gifts into the world and put my life energy out into the world? And in what way could it be life-giving as opposed to life-degenerating? What were the first projects that you started working on to? And how did, because this sort of leads us towards permaculture, I think. Yeah. This is, I mean, that, well, how did you first get started in that direction? It, ha- it predates permaculture quite a bit. I, I mean, I had a, a, a great grandmother in the 1960s who watched me when I was three years old, two and three years old, who had a garden in the back of her yard in Pasadena. And she was born in the 1870s. So she was really okay. old at that point. But she grew a huge portion of her food right in her garden, raised her chickens back there. And I, you know, some of my earliest memories is being in her garden and having her butcher a chicken and go through the whole process. And that really stuck with me. Um, you know, through my life, uh, just thinking about that. I also um, have loved gardening and different things as well. But it really started to formulate when I started training with a tracker um, uh, named Tom Brown Jr., which is a, uh, he has a wilderness survival school, but is one of the foremost trackers in the world. It led me down the trail of learning pattern recognition in nature. And so being able to see patterns, subtle patterns and how they connect and where they converge was something that I started training formally with the pattern recognition skills. Like if you think about it, you know, a good entrepreneur has really good uh, pattern recognition skills. A good designer has really good pattern recognition skills. I think it's probably one of the subjects we should call out in ed- the education process is how do we how do we help develop people's pattern recognition skills? So reading is one way we do that. You know, reading is you know all patterns and recognizing them and understanding and you know knowing knowing um, what the meaning is behind those patterns. And so training a- around that in the wilderness setting and in na- natural settings also helped me to bring that skill set into kind of a more, uh, uh, you know, urban, peri-urban and rural places that were had were, you know, farms and, and different places that lived out in my life. And so I was able to bring that into my life. But what started to happen was it started to see the patterning of wanting to harmonize with natural patterns in doing the food systems that I, you know, to support my family and around the work that we were doing at that point, which was uh, taking inner city kids into the wilderness and um, sharing skills around those things we were learning. One thing after another led to a, a search out there for design sciences that are based on pattern recognition. And so I was really interesting. Is there a design system that is basically the main element of it is how you work with patterns? 
and natural patterns specifically. And that led me right into the heart of permaculture. And so I um, found out more about the movement that was based out of um, Australia and had started up in the 70s. And I found that one of the founders of it, a man named Bill Mollison, was still alive and teaching. So I got a hold of him, was able to go and, and learn from him directly in Australia, and then came back and started to apply it to the place that we were work- we were living and working at the point at that time, which is the the land that's now called Quell Spring. We really uh, took it to heart because we were in a dry land situation with only six inches of rain, and we really needed to understand the hydrological processes, the the soil building processes, and how you could actually grow food in that area. And so that started this journey that has now cascaded into working internationally as a consultant around resilience design. Actually, you just give uh, the listeners a bit of a background on on permaculture. Uh, initially, I gather it came from sort of agriculture and sort of permits and trying to bring this nature together and see a sustainable, resilient background. But it, it's a lot more than that now, I understand. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's this combination of the words permanent and agriculture, permanent and culture. So it, it had like this uh, multiple meanings right from the start. So it wasn't just about agriculture systems. It wasn't just about cultural systems, but it was this this look at how do you design to work with nature? I mean, it, it, at the essence of permaculture is that it's, it's a design science for sustainable, or I should say regenerative human settlement. So it's a design science for regenerative human settlement. And it is something that is nothing else than that. It's not gray water systems. It's not uh, natural building. It's not agroecology. It's not agroforestry. It's not silvopasture systems, holistic management systems, all these different things, you know, rainwater harvesting. It's how you design those all together with the patterns in nature. And so okay. the, the whole spine of the of permaculture is basically a design set of ethics, principles, and uh, methodology that allows you to then approach any landscape and and work with it based on its site context specific um, qualities. You know, every every landscape is going to have a different expression of it if you've done it right, if you've done it well, I should say, um, okay. because you can't have one cookie cutter version of what a, a permaculture site looks like because it's based on the site's context. Okay. Cause, and this is really interesting because I'm, a lot of the probably messes we're in these days is is potentially because of how we design things. Mm-hmm. Um, we even even things like we, we talk about these days about human centered design. And yeah, you know, when mm-hmm. we think about that, we always think about sort of more what's desirable, what's feasible and what's viable. But yeah. there's very, very little what's ethical, what what are the benefits beyond that? And it mm-hmm. is about human centered design. It's not about yeah. environmental so so how how yeah. do you go about it what are the steps when you you say were to start say for instance with, with quail springs how did you get started there you know one of the principles of permaculture is to look at the big picture before you go into the details so you know one of the things i want to bring up around this is looking at our relationship with sunlight because that's a core part of the tenets of permaculture is what is our relationship with the energy of the sun because everything that powers our life including our bodies is sunlight energy ultimate. And so if you look at how a lot of the modern design systems have been built, it's basically been about using 
highly condensed forms of sunlight energy that is ancient and fossilized. So we've we've basically are burning fossilized energy in the form of oil, which is 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 just a very condensed form of sunlight energy. I mean, just to put it in perspective, if you have it basically takes 98 tons of living material to create one gallon of gasoline or four liters of gasoline, you know, so you you basically you know, it's this massive, you know, the photosynthesis that's going on in either oceanic uh, organisms or in in uh, terrestrial, and you're basically condensing it into this highly high form of energy. And to think of it, to put it in perspective as well, if you were to, let's say, have a stationary bike, you know, like a lot of people during COVID, they have had their mm-hmm. stationary bikes in their homes. If you hooked up a, an alternator, that energy like you have in your car, and you were to look at the calories of energy that one gallon or four liters of gasoline has, you would have to pedal for six months without stopping to c- produce the same amount of energy as one, uh, you know, one gallon, one four liters of of um of, of petrol. So it's, it's something to think of because our systems have been designed around this ancient um, high energy oils that um, basically allow us to push against nature. Because whenever you push against a natural pattern, it costs you energy. And so now we have, um, you know, we have houses being built in uh, Las Vegas that don't consider sun, the, the sunlight energy. They're using fossilized energy to be able to keep the house cool, to keep it warm, to pump water to it. All of these things that take a lot of energy were, are basically vulnerable if the point of that energy source is no longer available to them. So in permaculture, what we do is we try to move closer to real-time sunlight. We try to move to that place where we're designing closer to when that sunlight, the photosynthetic process has happened. So, you know, we're, we're you know, if we're heating a home and we're doing it from a regenerative uh, coppice system in a forest where we can maintain that through generations and we're only having about 40 or 50 years of sunlight rather than million years, you know, it yeah. of fossilized sunlight. And we're looking at the, the way that we work with that energy source. So that was a primary consideration. The other thing we look at, you know, we look at all the external influences on a site. What are the natural patterns? What is the topography of a site? What is the um, the natural patterns of the soils? What's the natural patterns of the vegetation? And permaculture is something that is, you know, was originally coined from a lot of research of indigenous cultures around the world that had lived regeneratively for over a thousand years. So you have all these systems like the the uh, Ohana system or the Ahupuaha system of, of Hawaii. You have the Balinese rice cultures. You have the Dehesa system of the Spain-Portugal area. All these different cultures had principles that basically that they used to design these systems that maintained and, and regenerated over time rather than depleted over time. And yet they're common principles amongst all of them. And that's where a lot of the principles of permaculture came in addition to how nature works to regenerate. 
So what were the, the, the common principles that would say when you bring up, you've started with Quail Springs, we've, we've got this, we're thinking of the larger picture to start with, and then we've got to think about energy sources and things like that. Yeah. I guess with sort of food and water as well are kind of the... So there, there are principles like um, if you have a function in your system that you need multiple elements within the system to support it. So there's a kind of a, a, a principle of redundancy. So if you had, let's say you needed irrigation for your garden, one element that might serve that is a municipal water source. So you get a municipal water source. That's one element. In permaculture, we'd say, ah, that's not enough. Although most people, that's enough. But one of the things we're seeing with the climate crisis is a lot of the large municipal systems, including California, is very vulnerable to collapse for long periods of time. Um, and some of that's power related, some of it's infrastructure related, but it's something to think of. So what other sources might you have? Well, you might have rainwater harvesting structures that capture rainwater right into the soil itself, right into the interstitial spaces of the soil and store that water and protect it for growth in the drier times. You might have a rainwater harvesting system off a roof going into a, uh, a cistern and you're, you'll be holding the water. You might have um, a well um, or a borehole that is another auxiliary source of water. You might have a gray water system that's reusing the water for higher levels of efficiency that helps you to feed your garden garden. And so thinking about that, that kind of redundancy creates this resilience in your system. And then conversely, each element in the system needs to have multiple functionality. So now let's take one of the elements like the rainwater harvest cistern or tank that was capturing that. Now, usually a designer would say, oh, yeah, its function in the system is to store rainwater. But in permaculture, we'd say, uh-uh-uh, no, we'd have to look and say, okay, well, it's a thermal mass system. So can we design, can we use that thermal mass to maybe um, in in a higher latitude, like you're in Germany, correct, Mark? Mm -hmm. um, you, could, you could have a south-facing uh, side of that. You might be able to get a lemon to grow where, like, like Sepp Holzer up in Austria, he has uses thermal mass to get citrus to grow up in the highlands of Austria, which is crazy. But it's it's something that you could use that thermal mass to get a species that you wouldn't normally be able to grow. Or you could have different flowering times with, with foods around that allow you to have an extended harvest. Um, you might have a trellis going up, so you could have growing on top of that. You might have um, a system where you have part of it shades a certain side and that might be a side in the summer you put a bench so that you could look out so this idea of multifunctionality both from a you know function and from an element standpoint is some of the design principles that we use um, but one interesting one that i really want to share is this this um we, we talk about the problem is the solution so looking at any problem you're facing in a design scenario and say, what is the solution within the problem itself? And so it's this kind of creative thinking that takes you to the edge. So you look at it from different vantage points and you, you really think of like, okay, how can I, how can I, how can I change the, the dynamic of this and through a good design process? So there are basically a list of, there's some that say there's 12 principles. Others say there's 20. It's, there's a, there's a basically a, a, a toolkit of principles that then you can apply through your design process. 
I love that. I love. I especially love the, the you know the, the the problem is kind of part of the solution or the obstacle is the way. It's like I kind of sometimes the biggest challenge can actually be the 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 main advantage that you can get from the situation. Yeah. So how how long though? Obviously, when you you start with something, it we're talking about nature. Nature yeah. has a different speed. It's not something we can set up overnight. It's a process. Um, but how how long would it take to sort of uh, take a piece of land and start shifting it over to saying, okay, we can have a sustainable regenerative settlement here, for instance? There's a lot of um, kind of misinformation out there around regenerative agriculture processes. A lot of the kind of the the uh, conventional agro agrochemical based agriculture world talks about how it's so costly and less yielding um, to move towards more regenerative more sustainable methods and it's just not true so it's all about design so one of the principles is, is that you have to produce a yield you just have mm -hmm. to produce a yield it can't just it's gotta be productive and so for example, I do a lot of work in refugee camps uh, around the world, uh, but mostly in the African context. And so we, I was in Somalia uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, and we were working in incredibly um, difficult conditions there, both from a, a, a security standpoint, but also from uh, uh, the standpoint of it was the middle of the dry season. So mm -hmm. we were we were hitting. Um, you know, 110 degrees Fahrenheit during the days, yet we were charged with getting gardens started with families who were only getting subsidy food and they were stunting. So they were having nutritional problems because they're only getting just, you know, kind of empty calories. And so getting food on their table was essential. So that had a lot of micronutrients. So with doing what we call a permagarden process, we basically structure the system so that it is highly um, uh, productive based on how we work with the soils, the hydrology, all of that. And we were able to install gardens with the families in a way that would produce year round. And within four weeks, they were eating amaranth greens out of that. And so you, you can structure quick growing quick producing varieties that then are nested within other slower growing perennials um, that in, in the agroforestry, that's one of the main strategies is that, you know, you're still growing crops amongst the trees you just planted. But, you know, as the system evolves, it gives you other niches to actually layer in other food systems that are more stable, but all along you get a yield. And so that's something that, you know, I, Every garden that we do, you you can eat out of it in four weeks, and and it a lot of it has to do with just how you structure it. We do this double digging process. We do you know deep soil um, amendment um, integration. We do uh, water harvesting structures, shade where it's appropriate and needed. We do a lot of diverse amendments as well. So we're um, you know if you think about anything in like in in your own life. If you're going to be eating something and you only ate rice or you only ate spinach, you would only last so long because you need a diversity in your diet. Well, our, our, our soil biology that supports the uptake of nutrients in plants also needs a diversity. So, you know, if you're just putting NPK out on your food that, you know, 
a lot of different plants need up to 40 micronutrients, not just the three macronutrients. And so you get these basically these food systems that are producing food that's very, very um, uh, deficient in the nutrients that we need to actually be healthy. And so you start to see levels of disease rise. It is a form of another pandemic in, in that we have this nutritional pandemic going on really across the globe now with the kind of the westernization of food and the loss of biodiversity. So a lot of the work that we're doing around food systems and and especially with gardens is, is looking at not only producing a lot of varieties of food, but also feeding a lot of variety of nutrients to the soil biome. And and how has it actually been? What, so Quail Springs has been going now for how many years? It's now 17? Just about 20. Oh, uh, yeah, like, uh, no, it's 18, 18, sorry. Okay. Uh, and um, what are the challenges you've had to overcome in that time? I can imagine it's something that shifts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that um, as a system matures and you have more what we call carbon cycling going on within that system. So, you know, we, we chose the, the, the land at Quell Springs was a, um, a cattle ranch for hundred over a hundred years. And so when we got there, the main cattle operations area was the most damaged part of the land. And, and then there was other areas that were less damaged, but still very, uh, uh, they had been stripped clean of vegetation and and um, and were in erosion cycles. So we chose to go to the most damaged part of the landscape. And it's always what I encourage people doing regenerative design is to go to the damaged landscapes, not the healthy landscapes, and do a healing process in that landscape. And so for us, we started with, you know, our first gardens are not as productive as the ones we have now. They were productive and we got food out of it, but it took a lot of energy. We had to think in a longer term mentality. Um, what I always tell people is, is start your design process from a 200 year vision. So think about that, what that means. And, and you know, are you structuring the system's hydrology to be able to produce more beyond your own life and your own energy? And um, with permaculture systems, there's there's more energy input in the beginning, but less in the long term because you're structuring it for long term perennial systems. And I think that's something that is um, an important thing for us to think of. How are we spending our life energy and what's it, its effects to the future generations? Because right now in unconscious designs, because I believe we either design our life consciously or we do it unconsciously. In an unconsciously designed system, what's happening now is we're stealing from our grandchildren and our great grandchildren to feed ourselves today. And I just don't want to do that. And I, I don't think most of the listeners here want that to happen either. They don't want to be stealing from their grandchildren, but our system is structured that way. And so we're in a place right now where we have a lot of decision making to look at how are we in relationship with that which sustains us and understanding what that looks like and being responsible for it. And it's, it's, a, it's a long journey that I think it just doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's something that takes time. Yeah. I think this is another big part of course Springs obviously is um, the educational part getting mm -hmm. the people mm -hmm. to come out and uh, and see yeah. for themselves and to understand that uh, that uh, I think I saw somewhere 68% of the world's population is projected to be living in urban areas by 2050 yeah. 
And we're really, really um, separated from our food these days. We, we yeah. uh, There's a quote, I think, if you see your food coming from a grocery store or you see your water coming from a tap, that's the system you'll defend. Um, but if mm. you understand the river or you understand the, you know, the tree that you got your food from, that's the system you defend. How do you get yeah. people? How do Because permaculture has also been incorporated into cities, I understand it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of the cities are one of the, best opportunities for moving towards a more regenerative society. And um, I, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, we need to move out of the city to the country to be a food producer. And what we're finding is that's just not true. Like, um, you know, again, starting from the big pattern, I, you know, I, for me, I like to look at cities as I don't see them as unnatural. I see the design as unnatural, but that the components like the steel, the concrete, I mean, the concrete is just an old riverbed that had been dug up and mixed in a mountain was blown up to get the materials. And, the you know, the, the steel itself is, you know, all the heat that was generated from some heat source. And there was, you know, minerals that came out of a mine and a mountain and, and, you start to remember that as you're going through a city that actually this place is made up of natural systems. It's just designed in a way that's not natural. Hmm. So the first thing is looking at um, how do you how do you look at the city as a, as a, an, a being? Look at it as an entire being. Like it's it's circulatory system, it's waste system, and looking at it as a whole being and saying, okay, well how can we integrate more of our needs for sustenance in that system? So I love, um, there's a woman named Lindsay Allen who has developed a, a rooftop farm on Boston, Boston Medical Center. She's a great one if you ever want to interview her. Um, she's a really, she's got some really interesting things that she's doing. She's also an agroforestry person, but she is working with Boston Medical Center who said, you know, they, they made a very bold statement. They said the first medicine uh, for us is food. Our first medicine is food. And so to do this, they also felt they needed to be congruent with also growing really healthy food. And they realized they had all this rooftop space that they developed a very, very productive farm. So if your listeners go to the Boston Medical Center rooftop farm, you'll find some incredible um, uh, visuals of what they're doing and then the education that they're doing with people in the community. And the whole farm is done in these little milk crates. So it's all movables and it's also scalable. So you can scale it up and scale it down. So if you're just have a small balcony or just a window with no balcony, you can still grow a one little bit in your, in your, um, in your in your uh, in your home in the middle of an urban city and so that's something that i think is a huge potential for humanity is to look at how creative can we get with the design of our cities um, there's also a man named mark lakeman of cityrepair.org which is um organization out of portland oregon and they're doing some very creative work with um the uh how to design a city so it's like a coalition of villages 
Mm-hmm. So it's like you have your, like in New York, you have your different boroughs that are there. Well, this, but looking at it from, you know, what are the waste streams? What are, where do we get our water? What's the, what's the, um, you know, the intellectual capital that we have? What's the material capital that we have? What's our spiritual capital in this little borough or this village within the greater? And then how do we link with the other villages and share? And do we have everything we need so we don't have to trans- be transporting you know, and, and the co- high cost of transportation, both from uh, cli- climactically co- high cost, but also energy cost for yourself as well. So they're really doing some incredible work with that as well. And, and finding that they're redesigning the city so that it actually has intersections for human interaction rather than car interaction. Or commerce interaction. Yeah, I think one of the things we, we realized when through COVID, where we suddenly saw our cities quiet, no cars moving around them, mm-hmm. just how much space there is when you take the car mm-hmm. out of the city. Yeah. And I know in many of the cities here in Europe, I'm not so sure in, in America, but the idea is to gradually try and reclaim that land. And that's a lot. That's yeah. a really substantial area that could be used in, in, in different ways. And uh, certainly yeah. green cities are a more attractive place. But um, what's the sort of scale? Because this is the big issue, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. We've got the, the population, you know, again, they talk about 2050 potentially coming up to 10 billion. One of the reasons we've managed to get to such a population was uh, the sort of industrialization of food. So we still need to feed a large portion of people. How, how does permaculture play a role in this? Do you feel? I disagree with that statement, just so you know. I, I want to disagree with you because if you look cal- calorically, at how much energy is produced. So one calorie of food energy from the conventional industrial agriculture systems um, takes about 10 calories of energy to produce it. And if you look, um, there's a professor, Steve Moore is his name, out of the Midwest, did a lot of studies around regenerative biointensive systems and found that with one uh, one calorie of energy input, we could produce 36 calories of food. And so I just wanna, I wanna bring it back to the science around it because what happens is, is you have like the soybean farmer that is you know, growing thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. You have the, the corn farmers growing thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. And you have only that happening you know, on that farm. Well, if you were to decentralize the food system and actually work in biointensive design and and so you're working in both space and time three-dimensionally so you're um you know you're growing in layers you can produce um 10 times the food that you can with a monocrop or or what i should say 10 times the nutrition per square meter and so if you look at the um the Dasha systems of Russia. It's a great example that's right now. Right now, Russia produces over half its food in two acre or less uh, parcels of land. I mean, just think about that. Decentralized through the whole country. So their their, um, susceptibility to a collapse or their vulnerabilities to collapse are very little because the whole system's decentralized. And because it's small, what it does is it gives the opportunity to integrate animals within that system, which also give a different layer of income. You have both perennials and annuals growing in those systems. It's very biointensive and it's also more human energy related. So one, if we decentralized and promoted more of these smaller 
highly productive biointensive systems that could sell direct to people um, within their own communities, we would have a lot more job creation within the industrial ag market. Um, the thing that is um, what I think is one of the, the telling tales of industrial agriculture is that you have a declining interest of young people wanting to learn and go into that field. So you have the average age of an industrial farmer rapidly rising. Um, so it's, I think, um, you know, the, the more conventional farmer, I think the average age is over 60. And then you get um, basically highly industrialized um, commercial systems that are just big corporations doing food that are hiring people at really substandard wages. And it's, it's something that our food system is really out of balance and out of sync. And it's actually wasting land that could be in higher levels of production. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think I think I know I, when I said that statement, it was more about how we created the society mm -hmm. over the last number of years. More and more people mm -hmm. were able to move away yeah. from the land, which used to be so yeah. intensive. So this yeah. this would actually be uh, one of the, the effects of, say, uh, going into the process would be to push people back towards working in the agriculture field. When you look at the regenerative agriculture movement, you have this rapid rise. I don't have the... Um, the statistics with it, but I, there is a rapid rise in interest of young people wanting to get into it. So you have this, you know, young farmer grants that you can get now. There's um, a lot of funding out there to move a farm into more regenerative practices that are is being driven by the farm bill now. So you get these countering things, the money's being spent on within the farm bill, but it's driving more interest in young people wanting to be land-based with what they're doing. I think we need to get really creative with it. You can still be a soy farmer, you know, Nebraska, but it's thinking of it from a different standpoint of what else could you integrate within to that system to actually build the ecosystem services that help it use less uh, inputs that are needed for such an unnatural system. The reason why these big monocrops need so much chemicals is that they're pushing against natural systems. They're pushing against nature's, the, the soil biology's protective uh, elements for disease and pest. It's, it's pushing against the nature, like it's stressing the plants so much that they're unhealthy, so they need these other inputs to keep them alive. So you have this incredible system that is pushing chemicals that are petrochemical based. So it's still mm -hmm. that ancient fossilized energy that's needing to keep an unnatural system alive. And that's why it takes 10 calories of energy to produce one calorie of food. And so that farmer can also integrate agroforestry into their into their systems. They can, um, if you take 22% of your land and put it into tree systems, so these could be productive tree systems, what happens is that the remaining 78% will double its yield. And that's a USDA statistic and study that was done with USDA. So just by integrating tree systems in there, one, you can have other products that you could sell from your farm, but you could also have some that are just staying there for pollination so you get better pollination rates within your farm. You get um, also birds now are within there helping to, uh, there's the habitat for the birds so that they can help with the pest management. So you have less needs to um, chemify your system and actually getting nat nature's natural process of pest management involved. And I think you know we just have to rethink it. And, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's something that... Um, 
not only rethink it, we need to redesign the system to stop pushing so much against natural systems so that we can use less energy in the system and get more productivity and more biointensity yeah. on the land. So we have enough land to feed 10 billion people. It's not that. It's the problem is, is that we're going to get to a place where there's not enough land to do this really wasteful agriculture practice to be able to produce. And also where, you know, if we deplete all of the biodiversity in the world, so the other species, it's not human centric. If we, we will not survive without biodiversity. Yeah. So that has to be one of our main aims of our food system needs to be promoting biodiversity. And, and I, that's just right at the core. Yeah, totally agree. Um, how is it? I think Joe Biden wanted to conserve 30% of the US land and water by 2030, which is, uh, I think that's something they're pushing for. Um, yeah. And globally, I think that's also something that's happening here across Europe. People are trying to reclaim and increase biodiversity because we're yeah. figuring out we're you know, we're not going to survive otherwise. Um, is permaculture going to be able to play a part in that? The design system that's permaculture could be used anywhere. And so I feel that basically the framework needs to be a part of any design. And I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it permaculture, but if you're not designing with the patterns of nature and using some of these key principles of energy efficiency, of, you know, redundancy, all of these things that come from nature, then that you're 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 susceptible to not having a system that's actually highly efficient working with natural systems so i i think yes there is a place it's not that it's not uh, uh, appropriate or anything it's just that it's it's just how it gets picked up like if we applied the same mindset that got us into this problem in the first place to trying to shift it we're going to be in trouble so we need to really get out of the mindset of designing with w without the considerations of nature we have to just stop that i mean it's not functional anymore and it's not going to help it's not going to lead us out of the predicament that we're in i mean we I, you've alluded to it already is that we are at a time in history where our generations you know around us are the ones that are deciding whether humanity continues or not. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not, wow, wouldn't this be nice if we could do this? This is like, are we going to do this and survive as a species? Or are we going to just continue down a path that's going to push us over the cliff of, of ignorance, really? And, and yeah. So from the actual other benefits from when people go into permaculture, it's from a societal form also a change. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. This is another thing that, that it's pushing. Could you just talk very briefly about that as well and the benefits of that? So much of the issues that are going on around the globe that the land degradation issues are human driven. And so how, what drives us to degrade land or to be okay with it even? Even if you feel like you're removed from it, um, you might be buying organic carrots from Whole Foods here in the US and not realize that it's actually degrading land in the Cuyama Valley the way, and depleting an ancient aquifer. You know, it's like, because you don't know, you're not in relationship with it. So there's this part of our, um, our understanding that, we need to know what drives us internally. And a lot of that has to do with how we collectively look at wealth, what is wealth, and how we interact together, whether collaboratively or competitively. Um, we have to, again, go back to natural patterns. And if you look at human operating system version one, which for millions of years, the humans 
you know, our human ancestors have been living cooperatively in village settings. And so that we are hardwired for that. Like our, you know, like our brains are hardwired for storytelling and understanding the world through stories. And our, um, and that's why podcasts are like really, I think, exciting because it's actually tapping into some of our original wiring. And I, I feel like it's really an important thing for us to understand then that dynamic of how we survive as a species rather than thinking of independence, which is what's promoted so much here in America, especially, we look at interdependence. So what is that mutual interdependence that actually links us to the world around us and recognizes our link to the world around us? You can't separate yourself from nature. And you also can't separate yourself from other people. It's really, really hard to do that. Um, you're, you would, it, it, it actually takes a lot of energy to isolate. And so how we work with the human design or what in permaculture, they call it the invisible structures, but I don't think they're very invisible, is the ways that we collaborate as humans. And so permaculture looks at that and, and designs for it as well. So um, how we work with sharing economies, how we work with uh, collectives and how we're, you know, it's like, it's a lot easier to dig uh, double dug garden beds with a couple of neighbors and then go help them and do theirs as well than just do it alone. So, I mean, it, it can be on such a, a simple basic scale, but it also could be on a much larger scale. But we really have to look at um, at the core of that, what we see as wealth. And if our wealth is, you know, we have this drive to just have the, you know, the dollar. I like to say here, let me pull this out here. Um, I like to just look at this and say, okay, here I have, I have this piece of paper mm -hmm. and I have this piece of paper. And if I was to ask you, what is the, which paper is worth more? Yeah. Which one would you say? Well, we'd it's look at the, yeah, we're going to look at the, the, the green, bill, the grilled right? dollar bill. Yeah. Why is that? Because this is a bigger piece of paper, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is a much bigger piece. I mean, this is like 10 yeah. times the size almost, but what gives this value? And what we see is that it's, you know, it's an agreement basically. Yeah. And yeah. that agreement then gives it value to this is worth so many chickens and this is worth, you know, this much gasoline or whatever it is you're buying with it. And, um, and, and in history, every single currency has failed at some point. So there's been some point when the currency has failed in every single currency in the history of currencies. So the agreement has changed. And I was in Zimbabwe when that was happening once, and it was literally one day to the next it was just devaluing in large, large chunks. Like you'd be at the store buying something, picking it up, going to the cashier. And by the time you got to the cashier, it'd be more expensive. Literally that happened. And so it's, it's something that's really important to understand that this is not wealth. It can be a vehicle to help you get things. So right now, maybe this is your vehicle to get food, but is it the only vehicle to get food? No, like you can grow some of your own food. You can, you know, have a balcony out on in, in your house in Paris. You know, you have a balcony growing pots. You can have things growing. I have a friend in Nairobi who she's on the fifth floor of an apartment and she has what she calls the fifth floor farm. And she raises chickens. She has worm systems. She has food growing and grows a significant part of her veggies, um, veggies 
um, right there. So if you only have, if your functional need is food and you only have one way to get it, you are vulnerable. And you can see like in the history of Cuba, uh, like when the collapse happened there, the embargo from the U.S. and then with USSR um, shifting um, and they lost their support, they went from overnight not having access to food. And they basically converted like Havana today still uh, produces over half of its food within the city limits because of that instance, because they immediately, every single vacant lot had to be food producing. Yeah. Every rooftop was food producing. And so I think it's, it's really important as we start to design around the human is system is understanding that this isn't our, our form of wealth. This is just a vehicle to help us get there. And it's one important one. Like you can buy services of a, of a, of a, um, a backhoe uh, digger that can help you do rainwater harvesting systems. So you can use this to do regenerative things in the landscape. You can do this to support a local farmer who's doing regenerative practices. And so then that money goes towards doing something more regenerative. And, and I think it's really important that we sit with our fam ourselves, our families and our community and say, what is it that we really value? And, you know, it's things like time with one another. It's things like healthy food, healthy water. It's things like music and, and uh, you know, education. And, you know, there are all these things. And then look at what are the pathways we have to that? And is this the only pathway? Because if you base your whole system of wealth on a GDP model, you have to rape the earth to do that. The only way you can maintain wealth in a GDP model is by taking natural resources at a rate increasing every year. Otherwise, it can't happen. So it's it's something that it's really our wealth, our perception of wealth drives our worldviews and our worldviews drive our actions. So really resetting that at home in ourselves and in our families and communities is part of the permaculture journey. And it's it's looking at the deeper root causes of why is this happening? I, th I think it's actually also more challenging in cities um, where we are just literally, it's about consumption and mm -hmm. the the sort of divide between where the product came from and, and what was the process to get yeah. it there is so, so abstract. And yeah. I think if we could bring those farms and that more sort of that that food into the cities, I'm sure mm -hmm. that would help people get a bit more in touch with nature. But mm -hmm. this, I think, this has been a brilliant. Um, how are you? How do you feel? We're just wrapping up. Just one one question. Knowing what you do now about um, our world, the challenges we face, how do you how do you feel about the future? You know, I am I am not just hopeful. I just I feel like um, I feel like the future generations are calling out to us right now and that there are a lot of people responding to that call where it's it's like you know I, what i would say to everybody here listening is picture you know kind of in your mind's eye just picture a child that might be living in the future and say what am i doing today that i'm helping them to have a good life and what in the decisions I'm making in the company that I work, is there an empty seat there for the future generations? Are they being considered in what we're doing? And I'm finding that more and more, especially these generations that are that are following me in, in my life, I'm in my mid-50s, and I'm finding some of these younger generations are really taking that to heart. And for me, that's just 
th- that to me is the most hopeful thing that I have seen in a long, long time. And I feel really good because I understand the power of good design. And when you know how quickly you can turn uh, degenerative systems using generative design and regenerative process, you realize how quickly we can turn the story around. And, it, and that, to me, is where the hope lies. It's, it's in conscious design that is consideration, is taking into consideration how we make more life with our own life. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, um, Warren, where can people find out more about the stuff you're doing? I know you've got courses that you, you yeah. do on the, this whole process. So where would people find that stuff? Yeah. So I have a website, which is permaculturedesign.us. Um, that's that's uh, where I link to all the different courses that I'm involved with. There's also quailsprings.org, which uh, there is a uh, Uh, online course that we just got finished filming and uh, it's a certification course that they're doing and I highly recommend that you can do it remotely but they walk you through the process and I teach a big portion of that. I also work with um, USAID. So if you look up resilience design framework and um, with uh, like the the food security network, um, you'll find a lot of our work that we're doing there. Um, You can also email me at warrenbrush at mac.com as well. And um, I don't always get back right right away to people, but I do get back to you. And uh, um, it depends if I'm traveling overseas or not. But uh, yeah, those are my connection points. Well, thank you very much, Warren. It's been amazing talking to you. And uh, I really think this is something that should be sort of developed more. So I hope that is going to be the case. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for also facilitating the conversation and and the thoughts around it and the, the important work that you're doing to share really good messages out there in the world. So thank you so much. It's a great thought, isn't it, that you can actually produce more food if you were to use a more biodiverse crop, something that fitted into nature. And by adding more trees, uh, 22%, I think it was, you increase your yield dramatically. So it seems like nature is really an abundant source. And when we design in accordance with nature, we can actually produce so much more. And I think that some of the things that we are missing is that sort of that part where our food is a big part of the impact we're having on the world and we're a little bit too disconnected from it. So what Warren had to say about bringing food into the cities, I think would also be really, really exciting. And we saw that in previous episodes with things like Freight Farm and Stadt Farm. So yeah, maybe this is the way forward. We can start uh, looking at how can we bring food in a sustainable way and at the same time, a regenerative way by looking at producing this kind of this excess that nature would produce it really is worth uh, checking out a bit more on permaculture and some of the work that warren is doing because there's an awful lot of thought goes into the design of these systems and i think they're going to have some real benefit if we start applying them so as always i just want to say a really quick thank you to paul fife the amazing podcast editor you can check his music out at www.paulfife.com that's P-A-U-L-F-Y-F-E dot com. And of course, a big thanks to you for taking the time to listen. I look forward to bringing you more amazing guests on the Mother Earth Hero Show. And in the meantime, don't forget to save the planet. We need to do it sooner rather than later. <laughs>